90.3 FM, The Voice of Harlem. Welcome to Inclusionism. It's 5.35 in the PM. I'm your host, James Felton Keith, and we are back uh, <laughs> one more Sunday with um, author Finn Brunton. He's at, um, at NYU. Uh, and over the course of the next few weeks, we're going to be kicking off a series with about 12 different authors um, just, you know, as people get back inside and it, and it becomes a bit cooler outside, um, we're sort of displaying our favorite reading list, uh, or I should just say my favorite reading list. I'm in politics, folks, so forgive me. I'm used to saying our and we a whole lot more than I. Sometimes I forget if it's, if it's just me alone. Um, but before I get into the book and we get really nerdy about its topic and everything, first, Finn, thank you for, for coming up and, and joining us. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. This is going to be fun. This yeah, be, it really is. I've been wanting to talk to you for a long time about a vast many number of things. Um, where are you at NYU? You're in, in what school? I'm in the Steinhardt School, in actually, Steinhardt Media, school. Culture, and Communication. Okay. All right. And you te you te are you teaching any courses right now? Or are you just research or just hanging out? I am. <laughs> I wish. No, I, I'm teaching uh, our uh, Intro to Media Studies, which means that I have the weird privilege of yeah. being some people's very first college professor. That is, you know what, that's a bit fascinating to me that, uh, that it's even a thing because, so I was just at a group called uh, APCA this um, weekend, yesterday actually, I keep forgetting it's Sunday. So Saturday I was in New Jersey talking to about 200 students about, you know, media and digital media and data. And I usually ask for a show of hands about who's familiar with, you know, certain terminology, big data. I ask them about the whole new data is oil conversation. Have they seen it on the internet, uh, in magazines? No hands go up. None. Mm. Um, and I'm regularly shocked by that. But uh, I was doing a talk out there about digital media in general. I uh, haven't been in ad tech and fintech and insure tech for, uh, for, I guess, the past 15 years. And uh, again, I'm just constantly shocked by 20-year-olds who are really leading us and using a lot of the tools mm. of this time. But they, um, they're not always familiar with how things work um but maybe your students are different i don't know how do when they come to you do they come to you like you know a blank canvas or it varies a lot and i yeah. think that kind of speaks to some of the challenges of making change in this space even is that like people are going to have very different levels of expertise you know there's a lot of Sometimes it's it's technically complicated, but there's also a lot of like deliberate, you know, opaqueness that industries create around questions like, you know, is data valuable? How much of your data is being used for this mm. purpose or that purpose? So you can get students who sort of see through that, students who want to work on it, and then lots of people who just have lots of demands on their time, you know, haven't really been able to dive into it yet. Yeah, I yeah, I do get they have other interests and it's a it's a demand on their time. Um but again, I'm just, I'm even shocked. I was, I was at Wayne State University downtown Detroit. This was months ago, maybe even a year ago now, uh, actually to hear the CTO of Domino's talk about <laughs> how he transformed the company. And it is a much better company, but it's based on data, et cetera. Anyway, uh, it's the biggest big data conference in their region. And these IT students, you know, yeah. first-year, second-year students came up, asked us why we were there. I'm like, well, we're here for this symposium. 
it's a pretty big deal at your school, it's, and it's the biggest one in the region. And I was like, you know, have you ever heard of big data? It's called the big data symposium. Have you ever heard that prefix on that word data? And they said, no, no, I never have. <laughs> I'm like, what are you studying? And they're like, oh, we're all IT, we're all info security, info technology. And I just went, yeah. really, really, you really? Anyway, yeah. <laughs> so that said, um, uh, this is your latest book, yes. right? Yeah. So your latest book is Digital Cash, and I only ask that, folks, because you know on the web it shows you're editing more than a few different books right now, or co-authoring, or you just what are you just in a really creative place? You're collaborating with everyone. Yeah, and I, like I love you know I, I have the tremendous luck to be in a job where I get to write a lot of the time. Sure, and that's, sure. That's kind of uh, that's like my craft. You know? Yeah, so that's what I love to stick with. You're writing about everything, and it seems like you you know are now this sort of media historian. Is that a is that a label you wear? Yeah, I was actually formally trained as a historian of science and technology. And, okay, I didn't uh, and know then that I kind of lurched profile. sideways into media. And yeah. That's so interesting. Well, when I was working um, mostly in corporate change management in the 2000s, we called ourselves um, uh, ethnographers of tech. Mm. Ethnog- and we we're really sort of corporate ethnography, which, which is a, maybe about you know, 30 or so year old craft formally. We were really looking at the culture of organizations, hmm. but in our case, we were looking at the culture of organizations per tech and how it, you know, incentivized change uh, quite frequently. You know, ethnography is a bit of an anthropological term, so you usually think of people dropping themselves into space for, you know, three or four decades to learn yeah. something new. But we were seeing big change every 18 months um, and trying to figure out how to communicate what that was was i think our our greatest task mm-hmm. you know our sort of our scariest thing or really our client's scariest thing and uh i mean we were really with you know we were hewlett packard people back when that was uh, um an interesting company to work for <laughs> <laughs> i didn't like it being there so I don't, i'm not going to take any shame and sort of dissing them a bit it was in uh under mark Hurd's tenure which i think he sort of destroyed the company but anyway mm-hmm. um so digital cash the unknown history of the anarchists, utopians, and technologists who created cryptocurrency. That's the last book. I really sort of just finished it about two days ago, um, but saw it and heard about it a long while ago. The most interesting thing, I say not necessarily the, the most interesting thing, let me take that back, in the book, but one very interesting thing in the book is the artwork on the front of the book totally. by a guy named Joey Colombo. He's on Instagram, folks, at J-D-O-T Colombo, C-O-L-O-M-B-O. And I've just been really stalkerish lately on his <laughs> Instagram. And so he takes money, different types of money, chops it up, and he's making this cool digital art. But I think first is like this very physical mm-hmm. art. It's sort of mixed media which I guess is right up you all's alley. Yeah. And it's just gorgeous. It gives me so many, there's so many seeing eyes everywhere. It's very sort of religious. What, what did you think? So you saw his stuff first or he, you knew him or how I did found that whole thing happen? Yeah. Really? Yeah. And I just like this and this, you know, I'd been, and at this point I've been working on the history of money for like eight or nine years. And mm-hmm. I was like fascinated with all of the iconography that's hidden in currency and totally. all the kind of meaning and significance and art that goes into making currency. Yeah. And he was like, 
extracting all of that yeah. and distilling it and producing these like beautiful, weird, psychedelic, sometimes, sometimes like meditation objects entirely out of physical currency. It is. He's taking, it's just, yeah, it's it's wings and Cerberuses. I'm not even sure if that's the way to pluralize that. I guess it would be. <laughs> is it Cerberi? Anyway, uh, maybe that would be one-headed. So anyway, um, that was really weird. <laughs> but yeah, so okay, so he was doing that. But yeah, money has always been sort of this um, sort of tangible thing, but also this mythical thing, or, yeah. or based on this mythical thing. I see so much sort of religion and money. Even if, I, as I look at the front of the book, I'm seeing these sort of, I don't know if they're gargoyle, lion head, things I don't have words for, but these sort of mythical creatures yeah. that uh, signify either everything that we call valuable or everything that we need to guard because we call it valuable. But that's sort of, that's what our money looks like. Yeah. That's odd. <laughs> it really is. Yeah. Or maybe it's not. Maybe it's a good thing. Um, I had a few crypto guys from regularly on the show. They've been here twice. So I, I haven't had anybody else twice so far. And they were from a group called Decred. Yeah. Uh, you familiar with Decred? Yeah. So I like Decred's sort of uh, methodology and how they do what they do. I feel like at their best and it is a, it is work it is a you know something they need to try to achieve but i think they're trying to sort of incentivize more democratic structure they they recognize mm. that even in the cryptocurrency space even the blockchain space sort of pockets of influence can develop mm -hmm. and obviously they reference a lot of sort of ethereum folks and a lot of bitcoin folks who have sort of um, created pockets of power, pockets of influence around how those currencies should be, you know, mined and distributed, et cetera. And so they're trying to sort of get ahead of that. It's sort of, I don't know, I guess the way they think of themselves as uh, crypto 2.0. Hmm. Yeah, totally. That's my language, not theirs, but that's sort of how I'm looking at them. Yeah. But um, so as you're studying the, the history of money, um, just history of money in general, um, and you've looked at that as, as media, I guess, or yeah, some sort. Yeah. yeah, I guess it is. I hadn't thought about that, but yeah. As you do that and you come over into the crypto space, well, you do a lot of parallels between old money and new money here in the book. Um, where do you think money itself is is going? Like, uh, are we are we moving to a cashless time? Is that too broad of a question? No, that's a great question. Okay. Yeah. No, because it's something that like we see we see these little flickers of all over the place. Sure. You know, at the scale of like Sweden or even at the scale of like big parts of metropolitan China that mm -hmm. have gone like super cashless. But even at the level of like, you know, this whole legal battle that's just been playing out in New York State and California over, yeah, whether or not stores can be completely cash can refuse to handle cash. Yeah. The thing is they can refuse to so <laughs> I've been in stores here. They they'll refuse to take your digital currency. They'll refuse to take your card. Yeah. And I get that there's a there's a technological barrier. Yeah. There. And there's a fee too. And there's a fee. Yeah. On their side, they yeah. could bump up our fee. Yeah. Uh, which I wish they wouldn't. But uh, I'm usually, I remember when I first heard about that argument, I was a bit peeled because I can remember just going back and forth with folks saying, "You can't tell me that you can't take." my method of currency because yeah. I don't carry cash. But um, but I don't know. What do you all, as you all are thinking about these issues of if we can go cashless or not, what are you, I mean, 
Any any opinions? Any strong opinions? I mean, yeah, feel no. free to <laughs> yeah. go I have, there. Yeah. I have some very strong opinions about this, actually. <laughs> yeah. Um, because I uh, I think the um, so so when we talk about going cashless, um, in some ways we're talking about like replatforming what money is, right? Because mm. we think of cash as being you know archaic and cumbersome. Um, but it's also, in, an, in a way, if you think about it, deeply democratic, right? It's this, mm. like, object that uh, doesn't reveal anything about how you use it. Um, it gives you total control over how you want to spend it. It can't kind of uh, change its value relative to what you're buying, which mm. is something that digital currency can do in a lot of different ways. Um, mm. You know, you can think about it in the sense of like if you're um, if you're trying to you know spend points, if you're trying to spend a lot of different kinds of credit, they can offer you selectively better terms. If you like buy something that's part of like a sweetheart deal that they have, there's a lot of different ways that. That cash actually gives us a striking amount of freedom and control. Um, one thing that I like to contrast cash to in the state of New York mm. is uh, is against um, EBT, against mm. like yeah, you know, yeah. because those are things where, right? Like if you're getting food benefits through yeah. New York, right? You're getting it on a card, yeah. and that card means you can only buy certain categories of goods. Sure. You know, it's not actually money. It's instead, like, these sort of highly specialized coupons, sure. right? So you're, like, cut off from access to, like, rotisserie chicken, which is, like, right. the cheapest source of healthy protein in the grocery store because huh. that's prepared food. So Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, right. yeah. Oh, you can't, okay. And that's, like, a way of, you know, of sort of managing people's activity through mm. being able to specify digitally what it is that money is good for or not good for. Mm. And so cash is is this kind of mixed bag, right? Because, you know, it's old, it's messy, it's easily stealable, it's sure. dangerous in a lot of different ways. But it's also something that is... Um, it's a, it's a really unique kind of asset that's actually very freeing and gives us yeah. a lot of control. Like if you, one of my favorite um, sort of colleagues in this space is named Lisa Servan, and she mm. went and worked at check cashing places. Yeah. And one of the things that she discovered was that all of the people that she was serving, right, because if you're an outsider to that world, you can, of course, ask, like, why would anyone ever, you know, cash a check through this system, get a payday? People say that all the time. You know? And it's yeah. like, but clearly everyone's going to yes, yeah, yeah, make yeah, a lot exactly. of money. Yes. And, and one of the reasons why is that it really makes a difference to know how much cash you have on hand, yeah. you know, instead of, like, using something that could bump you over into overdraft or sure. using something that's, like, charging you a ton of weird fees that you don't know about. Yeah. Like, in this case, it's totally explicit, right? We're going to rip you off, but in return, you get this much cash yeah, in hand. And when cash. you spend it, you know exactly how much you have to spend yeah. and exactly how that works instead of a lot of these, like, attempts to build new uh like you know kind of cash card debit card systems yeah lots of hidden trap doors built into those you just you make me think so much about um well number one is lisa is she publishing some of that work I've, i feel like i don't recognize the name but i feel like i saw yeah. or read something a paper or something about yeah uh, an experiment like that recently yeah but i'm i may not be thinking about her is she at she's at nyu um she is i'm embarrassed to say i can't i love working with her but i can't remember well, where she, she works yeah but, right but okay. she, yeah she just came out with a book uh last name is s-e-r-v-o-n she came out with a book uh like two years ago that's yeah. basically about uh her sort of accounting for the realities of like living without a lot of access to the kinds of cashless technologies that sure. we might take for granted sure. and then yeah how much check cashing can make a difference there so you know so i'm locked in the middle as um you know 
as a politician now, you know, running for Congress up here in Harlem, I'm locked into these arguments between p- political ideologies around whether or not to, I don't want you want to use the word give people cash. Mm-hmm. I don't want to use the word give, but really just get people the cash that at least in my opinion, I think that they're owed. And I run into people, people who are both liberal and conservative, who think that it's more ideal to programize how folks get cash. Mm. Uh, and I'm, I'm triggered uh, to think about that based on uh, your reference uh, to EBT versus actual cash. And my responses are usually you know, similar to what you're saying. Like There is a boat of freedom that goes along with having choice. And it's also, I think, you know, as a you know, markets guy who thinks that markets can be good as long as they have regulation on top of them, uh, that uh, it's better for the market, for people to actually leverage their autonomy and their choice, which mm-hmm. I think is all that we should be trying to protect. Mm-hmm. And everyone goes, ah, oh, but, you know, and I get it from rich and poor people. They go, yeah, but how are they going to spend it? And I'm like, that is the most, you know, to try to relate it to, like, sexism or racism, Racism, I'm like, that is the most poorest thing I've ever... Like, no one mm-hmm. asks you how you're going to spend uh, your money. And the problem is, if anyone did, you would feel somewhat stifled. Whether you had, you know, the gall to stand up mm-hmm. or not is irrelevant. People can be stifled because they're just, you know, they're quiet, they're meek, they're used to being hushed. And um, I think we have to get back to a time where we're at least as decision makers, as policy makers, as, as educators, we're trying to incentivize more choice mm-hmm. because then we get to see what people really are, what they actually need, and, uh, and then we distribute, uh, I think, goods and services a whole hell of a lot better. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, I think, anyway, per what you're saying, there aren't enough folks who consider cash to be this evidence of freedom Mm -hmm. and i don't know if you would use that language but i like the way you know the things you were saying earlier it made me sort of piece those words together it's sort of evidence of our of our freedom um and a lot of people may think that that's uh and i've heard people say they think that that's um a bit crass Mm -hmm. for lack of better words (laughs) you know like like cash is dirty cash is dangerous Mm -hmm. and it's material we shouldn't just care about material things but even though it is tangible, it's something you can touch often and maybe mm-hmm. something we won't be able to touch later. <laughs> uh, I don't know that it's material. I think the stuff you can get with it are you know, material things. Mm-hmm. But cash, per I think where you were going, is um, sort of this boat of autonomy, of freedom. Yeah. Is that... Yeah, I mean, yeah. when you think about it, like I don't think we necessarily think of cash this way as one of the last great public institutions in American life, right? Like it's something that... Mm-hmm is, you know, produced on behalf of the American people for our collective use Mm. in a way that, and, you know, it gets complicated in terms of exactly who's in charge, but in a way that nonetheless, like, we, we trust is generally being maintained to try to, like, spur economic growth and not favor, you know, say, debt holders over creditors or what have you. Like, Mm. there's, there's a way that you can actually think about it as something that provides a level of access to, equal treatment in terms of how our money is handled, which, so for me, just to kind of put this in very concrete terms, there's a lot of reasons why I would love to have a cashless future, Hmm. but the reason why I'm afraid of it is that it's a cashless future, I worry, that is brought to you by PayPal. 
You know, it's mm. a cashless future that is brought to you by Venmo, which is a subsidiary of or PayPal. PayPal. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and it's one of those things where, like, and those services are fine as far as they go. Although one of the reasons why PayPal can function is that it runs on the back of a public service, sure. which is the charge-free way that we settle transactions between banks. Yep. Um, but when I think about like where I could see a negative cashless future going, yeah. I think about the dangers of what we used to call the company store. You yeah. know, right? Yeah, where yeah. you're like, you're working at the mine and you get paid a little in cash and mostly in like coupons. That you can that only redeem for whatever work. price. Yeah, exactly. I grew up in that. Industry. Yeah. 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 And that's something where like, you know, to imagine to imagine how these systems might play out if they weren't properly regulated, if they weren't yeah. treated as a public resource. Yeah. Um, like that's that's where I get really worried because that's that's the way a lot of money was for a lot of vulnerable populations for most of human history. Yeah. Um I feel like yeah, a lot of it still yeah, still is. It's so I mean it it's scary to me. Like that that sort of extra regulation is terrifying to me, especially in this this digital era, uh especially as I meet, you know, younger and older people, younger and older than me. I feel like I'm I'm right on that line. Hmm. I'm sort of it's one of these kids the just this Saturday, but this happens all the time. <laughs> They call me the oldest millennial. They're like, oh, you're old. And it's like, and you're my, you know, like I've even had, you know, these college students, 18 years, like, oh, you're my mom's age. And, you know, I think, you know, I just turned 38 last week, so I feel <laughs> like, a, like a young person. But um, I get it. You know, we've got some time between us. And as they, you know, go into this, uh, I am most worried that not enough people are thinking about their independence and autonomy as they engage company by company, mm -hmm. you know, whether they work for them or not. Um, especially, you know, in my space of being sort of the, the data fanatic, I'm worried that we're all working for these companies, whether we know it or not, and yeah. we're helping them make better decisions whether we know it or not. And automation is not necessarily a robot running through the streets. It's automating the way in which we make decisions about how we distribute goods and services to us, whether we know it or not. And um, I am, you know, in that group that thinks what we don't know can kill us mm -hmm. or can kill what we love about being us, which is sort of that freedom to make a choice mm -hmm. without being prodded one way or another when we wake up every morning. I mean, I wake up at my, every morning mainly to my phone mm -hmm. telling me whatever was already on the schedule. <laughs> Where I have actually, I'm insane enough to have hired people to tell me what to do every day. <laughs> I had people text me before this, like, we need you right out of there, right after the studio. But hopefully my life won't be like that after this campaign. But um, so, so, so what can we do? I mean, so obviously education is, is key. And, mm -hmm. you know, publishing, you know, this stuff as a reference point is key. But um, uh, let's take, now that I think about it, it's uh, 5.58. Let's take a, a quick break. When we when we come back, I want to talk about sort of the the future of where we can go um, from from a cryptocurrency standpoint. Absolutely. If we were to replace cash, how how wise can we be about replacing it? And if and after we do that, um, you know, what are what are the real risks? And uh, you know. What's the real potential? Like, are we are we optimistic uh, in general? We being you, but um, <laughs> you know, I think I'm pretty optimistic in general. But um, yeah, 
We'll get to that um, right when we when we come back. Yeah, yeah, you got time. WHCR 90.3 FM, the voice of Harlem. Folks, I just realized Alice Smith, my favorite singer, just dropped a new track called Defenses, and um, it's just on SoundCloud. I just wanted to be the first person to play this song on live radio ever, and I'm going to send her an Instagram message right after this. If you don't know Alice Smith, she's amazing. Everyone should know. You're doing coming so close. Can't you see that I'm defensive? Tell me what will you do? Will you swallow me whole? Me and all of my defenses.
I love Alice Smith. I just, I think she's like the most amazing thing since last bread. Um, everyone should check out this track. Anyway, so we'll get back to the show. Uh, <laughs> it's gonna be really hard to follow that. No, no, she's good. <laughs> she, uh, no, we'll we'll be good. We're 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 here to be nerdy and uh, solve all the world's problems, uh, because that's what people who wear glasses and and have beards, uh, <laughs> me and you respectively. Uh, that's what we're here to do. Um, and she, again, if we can solve enough of the problems, people like her, the, the artists of the artists, I think they make it all, they make it all worthwhile. Um, so, so per that, like for the, for the artists who need cash, I don't mm-hmm. even know how I'm going to tie these in. Um, <laughs> let me just back up. Where were we? So, right, as we move into the space of, of digital cash, uh, and talking about sort of how optimistic we may or may not be for for tomorrow, and I see so many sort of dystopian mm-hmm. POVs in the in the modern art and in literature and film. Um, you know, something that often comes to me, and I didn't see you really uh, go here uh, in the book, and I don't know how true this is or is not. When people talk to me about Bitcoin early on, when they talk mm-hmm. to me about like 09, 010 uh, Bitcoin, a lot of folks came to me when I was first finding out what it was. And we were even working on a blockchain like circa 2010 called Integrate. It sucked compared to <laughs> Ethereum. It was slow, blah, blah, blah. But it got me in a lot of these spaces. But when people first came to me, they say, yeah, so there are people out here uh, who have created this new you know, cryptocurrency, digital currency was slightly new language to me at that time uh, based on, it's like, it's cashless. It's all digital. And it's a way to still make transactions in the world online, but remain anonymous, Mm -hmm. like with cash. And that always stuck with me, I think maybe mainly because it's the first thing that I heard. Um, But from your point of view, from your, your research, was that the objective or no? Do we know? Will we ever know like what the real point of, of Bitcoin was? Or was was it to, you know, make make shady transactions or honorable <laughs> transactions just without having people track you? You know, yeah. I don't I don't know. Was that Yeah, that's it. No, that's a great question. Yeah, I I just I don't know I don't know the answer to it. But people tell me and you know, I feel like sometimes I want to regurgitate it, but I don't actually know if that was how we got here. Um, or if it was just a mess, you know, a lot of people go into the transparency conversation, mm-hmm. which I also don't know if that's the thing. You know, I like yeah. the first one. Like, I want to make a transaction, and I don't want you to know, but I do want to be able to, yeah, make the transaction and own whatever the thing that I'm going to buy is with cash. Is that, uh, so is that something that comes up as you all talk about, you know, digital cash in general? Yeah, it totally is. But it, one of the kind of funny things about, because what you're describing with Bitcoin, yeah. like your exact experience with it is totally kind of the the initial way that Bitcoin was kind of misunderstood. Mm, mm. Because when uh, Nakamoto, the sort of pseudonymous creator, mm-hmm. produces uh, this initial white paper and kind of the first draft of the code, mm. um, it has a series of, um, the paper has a series of statements about like, this is what Bitcoin will be able to achieve. Mm-hmm. And pretty far down on the list, it says transactions can be anonymous. Mm-hmm. 
And all that was really meant by that was that um, you can create a Bitcoin wallet, right, without having to use your real name or any kind of government ID. It's not sure. like a bank account. So you can, like, send and receive things without having to prove who you are, you know, except through the use of your personal password that you've generated for that. Yeah. So the reason I say that is that people kind of seized on that as being sort of the point of Bitcoin. Um, and... I think one of the things that Nakamoto was very careful about was saying they can be anonymous because right, they actually right. get easily de-anonymized. And in some ways, that focus on can be anonymous took away from the bigger goal because the bigger goal of Bitcoin is a much weirder goal. And I think mm. it's a goal that a lot of us would find much more counterintuitive, mm. which was to try to create a digital object which could be the equivalent of gold. Yes, yeah. yeah, and so that's kind of the area where things get strange because this is Bitcoin was in uh, was kind of starting from a whole alternate school of economic theory than a lot of us are are experienced with, yeah. which is basically about trying to develop forms of money that are not regulated by states or governments right. and that are managed in what's called a deflationary way, which yeah. means that they become harder to get over time. Mm -hmm. So they tend to accumulate more value, right? Because yeah. there's like fewer of them instead of more of them. So Bitcoin was actually begun as a project that has its roots not in necessarily in the business of helping us make anonymous transactions, mm -hmm. but in the weird kind of libertarian heritage yeah. of trying to come up with gold and silver alternatives to state currency. Yeah. No, I, I love it. And I think even with the, the brief bust and resurgence of Bitcoin over the course of the past decade, that's been achieved. And so for everyone, you know, I started sort of my graduate career, graduate school career, excuse me, as you know, I wanted to be an economist. Hmm. So I was an engineer first. I was a mechanical engineer. And my transition was after I realized all the problems I cared about were economic, I hmm. just wanted to understand instead of the distribution of energy, which I think most engineers, at least the mechanical, the chemical, and the electrical engineers, which in my opinion are the only type of engineers, computer engineers are... <laughs> Computer engineers solve business problems. They're great. They're logicists. Mm -hmm. But um, we look at particles, but we look at friction mm -hmm. of different sorts and energy transpire from that. And so the problems that I wanted to solve really had to do with transactions of any sort, hmm. digital data, non-digital data being you know equivalent to the particles and value proliferating. And uh, anyway, I ended up, you know, dropping out of grad school to try to start a bunch of companies in South Africa and here in New York. And, you know, that didn't go well. And now I know things because I've fallen flat on my face. But the point the point is um, we were trying to figure out, you know, I was trying to figure out at least or I thought that I wanted to try to figure out at that point in time. This is 2005, 2006, somewhere around there as I was, you know, done with regular business stuff. I wanted to figure out how to solve these distribution problems of mm -hmm. value because I always have felt undervalued. So it's sort of a cultural incentive to solve some economic problems, thinking I may not even be able to get there and solve those. And anyway, uh, there weren't, I think, economic thinkers at the time that I could sort of turn to who were starting to noodle on these decentralized, for lack of better words, meaning decentralized from at least a central government uh, entities that could be traded and transacted and, and that a market could proliferate around. But now there there are, uh, via Bitcoin especially, but so many other um, mm. 
uh, products. And, um, and we're 10 years into it. We're three months away from a brand new decade. And I'd like to say I could imagine what the 2020s, the roaring, hopefully, 2020s are going to be like. But what do you, I mean, wh- what do you think? Now that, you know, Bitcoin has sort of gotten over that hurdle of faith, mm-hmm. right? And I like to, usually when I'm talking to people about what money is, I like to reference the in God we trust on our currency in mm-hmm. particular to, you know, establish that it is a trust of sort of broad, vast, you know, sweeping trust between people who don't really have any other incentive to trust each other at all. Uh, unless it is per their very rigid faith or some fraternal type of order. Mm. And so as we're in this place where a new type of trust has been developed and it is adjacent to the old world of, uh, you know, gritty commodities, where where can we go? Like, what are some of the things that you are talking about with your students? What are some of the things that you and some of your, your co-authors are talking about? What can we break? Like, what can we radically transform? How can we be free? <laughs> Whoa. Too much. Yeah. yeah no, yeah. that was that was awesome though. That's where I want every series of questions to go. Yeah, like how can know? we be free? I yeah. just want to be free. And yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. How can we do that? No, I mean, well, like to kind of uh kind of fold this question uh back a little bit in mm. a way. Like when we talk about the trust that we have in money, mm. um, what part of what we're talking about is a model of the future that we believe in, right? Like, mm. so money holds its value in the deepest sense because we believe that someone will accept it from us in turn, you mm-hmm. know, whether it's so there's like this wonderful technical term for, for money in the currency biz, which is passing current. Mm. And what that means is money is anything that you will accept because you believe that you can pass it on to someone else mm. and they'll take it from you, whether that's the form of like, you know, yeah, commodity that you're like hoarding and trading or something the government will receive from you in payment of your taxes or just something that like the merchant down at the bodega will take. Um, So when we talk about money, we're actually talking about these different models of the future. Part of what drove Bitcoin early on was that it came out in 2008 when for a lot of people, the future of money as such looked really grim. And yeah. here was an alternative, right? Like here was something you could move into while everything went to hell. In... Wasn't that crazy though? How it came <laughs> out at that, like right at the end of 08, 09? Even when yeah. they call it the sort of the 08, uh, you know, recession. I was tracking it in 07. I mean, there was yeah. a big market dip in February, yeah. another one in October of 07. But anyway, I mean, I guess we'll never know from our question earlier. But it's crazy how this all just happened right. Yeah. At that time. It and was. I'm forever scarred by that time. <laughs> it uh, was a chilling no, it was it was kind of a revelation yeah. of like just how incredibly sensitive and brittle the yeah. like whole apparatus yeah. of, of finance and money had become. So I, I say all that because um I'm I'm honestly like a I, I'm a very optimistic person. Oh, like yeah. not because I have like a kind of master vision of the world, but sure. because I believe that in just about kind of any disposition of events, there's yeah. there's an angle you can take, there's a way you can move, there's there's actions that are available to you that could that I'm could put things in a positive direction. So with that said, I think in some ways one of the most exciting things about the proliferation of blockchain and cryptocurrency tools mm-hmm. is seeing the ways that they're suddenly getting people to rethink what it means to own things, yes. what they think of as the kinds of things that they can own. I mean, to I know a lot of issues and, and thoughts that you have. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And, and how they also think about how they can be accumulating value in their lives. Because we're really like... You know, at this moment, we're in a really dangerous political space where when we talk about economic inequality, Mm. one of the things we're talking about is that there are whole 
classes of assets mm-hmm. available to one group of people that are not available to anybody else. Oh, yeah. Oh, you yeah. and I, like, we can't get any kind of access to, like, to the funds, to the, like, trade, basically to all the different, yeah. like, ways in which our wealth could be kept and grown and protected from taxes and moved around the world and, like, played on the market by people who don't take, you know, table stakes is $100,000, a million dollars, you know, whatever. And, to play. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so that know, means yeah. that, like, it's not just that the rich are able to capture more wealth. It's that they're able to capture wealth in ways that exacerbate yeah. the unfair advantages that they have over everyone else. Sure. So when so when I see these new money technologies, one of the things that I have my eye on is uh, is n- like is not the kind of like speculative. You know, I put my life savings into one of these, and now I'm like watching every uptick and downtick. Yeah. Yeah. But instead, watching the ways that individuals and communities are starting to say like, how could we use a blockchain system? Right. To like, you know, to create like ledgers by which we could like use more of our own resources as collateral for things the way that yeah. rich people do, you know? No, yeah, no, you're right. Uh, oh, my God. Yeah, so many. I have a, a friend named Sinclair Skinner, a frat brother, actually, down in D.C. He's leading a bunch of different blockchain initiatives between here and sort of the redevelopment of the money system in Zimbabwe and Zambia, mm. just all those sort of previously Rhodesian places and I didn't even realize what he did he's an older frat brother of mine we went to the same school in undergrad until um I did a, sort of an inclusion talk way back not way back but you know a good four or five years ago at money 2020 in mm-hmm. Vegas and he was there like I didn't know you were here I'm like yeah man I'm in fintech <laughs> what do you do he's like I'm in fintech I'm de-. but you know I mean yeah he's looking at um communities as, as classes of asset holders who mm. wanted uh, new ways to transact goods as these folks were coming into new sorts of uh, pro- you know property. They were basically acquiring a bunch of new property and wanted to securitize how they distributed stakes in that property over time. And they wanted a sort of brand new way to do it in a place that lacked, uh, you know, legal and uh, and governmental infrastructure. Mm. And uh, and so they can, just like how I think a lot of those com- countries have uh, leapfrogged us in mobile technology. I think they will also in sort of a, in capital technology or financial technology, uh, for for lack of better words, or you know, currency technology, whatever we want to call it. But. Um, yeah, I am mostly interested in how we identify ownership. Mm-hmm. I think it's sort of my 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 core issue. If I if my objective as, you know, as I mentioned earlier is to watch how value proliferates, how, you know, how friction uh from tr- our transactions uh, incentivize it. Uh then how we assign ownership mm-hmm. to me is uh is core to being able to formulate some sort of, not just equality, but equity. Yeah. Um, and I think it even goes into what, what inclusionism actually is. I think a lot of people think it's an interesting play on words, which I think it is. We, it's a nice website to own, and we got it for only nine bucks. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, inclusionism actually, so it's a, it's a biopolitical framework, and it says first that people have an intrinsic value. Mm-hmm. And it really is a physics analogy per you know, my engineering and economics background, the moment you move through space and time, the transaction of those movements, they trigger 
certain needs and so value proliferates. Mm -hmm. So number one, we have an intrinsic value. Number two, we only derive that value from interactions with each other, meaning uh, you know, it's like value is like that of energy. It cannot be created or destroyed, mm -hmm. but it can change form. It's like if you, the minute you live in a, a, a dense space, uh, you have to at least react to the other objects in that space. And so mm -hmm. value is transacting because you're at least acknowledging those, uh, whether they're humans or other things. And then the third piece is that people are entitled to an equity stake in the value that proliferates from mm -hmm. those interactions. So you have value. We derive it from each other. You're entitled to a piece of the pie. It's not always 50-50, but it's definitely not 99.9.1. You <laughs> yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. And you're right about how so many other folks, uh, so many wealthy people in particular trap you know, value. If you have $100 million and you just buy the S&P, mm -hmm. it's likely that you'll have at least $110 million <laughs> tomorrow. If yeah. you only have $100, well, it's likely that you'll spend all of it yeah. um, to figure out how to survive. And yeah. you do that poorly, and yeah. you'll be closer to death yeah. after a calendar year. Yeah, and you'll be spending, like, yeah. you know, because you'll have, like, less cash. Right? I mean, we all know this. We Many of us have probably had this experience, right? Like, you have to buy, like, crappier shoes, and then yeah. the shoes fall apart faster. And, you know, yeah, yeah you're, like, no. you're, you're the constant overhead. Whereas, do you know, have you ever looked at the Freeport system? No, no, I'm not familiar. So, basically, like there's... ports? Ports? Well, oh. it's like this... Uh, they're, they're connected with ports. There's, uh, there's one in Geneva. There's one in Singapore. There's a number all over the world. But they're sure. basically these massive facilities that live in the international zones uh. where, like, you know, airport spaces, right? Uh, Which uh. means that you can store things there and keep them out of tax obligations. Oh, yeah, I've seen that. Yeah, so there's, like, I, these massive facilities. I've seen with, artwork like, left, just yeah. left on runways yeah. so that's not taxable. <laughs> yes, I yeah, know what exactly. you're talking about. Yeah, so these, crazy. Like, there's these vast facilities that have stowed away, like, you know, these huge portions of, like, the world's art and, you know, Lamborghinis and gold and God knows what all and pallets and pallets and pallets of cash. Yeah. And those are... These like that's that's a way of understanding the kind of asset classes that are available to the very wealthy that are not only not available to everyone else, but that skew any kind of reasonable regulatory accounting you would try to do. You know, yeah. we have no idea what's buried in those big facilities. Oh, dude, nothing. Even um, I was just watching, you know. Uh, there was a New York Times documentary. I love the content that they're doing, by the way, on like Hulu. But they had in the woman who does the Forbes 400 list. Yeah. And she's like, you know, we do this, but we really have no idea <laughs> yeah. how much wealth these people have because we just can't track it. Yeah. You know, it's really just people who have an, a stake in a publicly traded company. We can try to clock that. You know, I remember, you know, when, when Gaddafi was killed, they said he may have been worth $200 million. Yeah. And I just thought it was impossible. I was like, I don't know how you kill $200 million. He had a lot of body doubles. I'm like, they probably didn't get him. Yeah. They didn't get him. <laughs> they, they need to get him, but I don't know if they got him, you know? Mm. Apparently they got him. I don't know. He may be living with Michael Jackson in a bed and <laughs> breakfast in South Korea somewhere. I'd uh, watch that show. I would, would totally watch that show. show. I yeah. heard Michael Jackson was actually a robot the last 20 years, but he actually transitioned to Mariah Carey <laughs> around 19, right after the Bad Album. Yeah. So Mariah Carey is actually Michael Jackson. All right, I quit. <laughs> I don't even know where I'm going with that. Oh. <laughs> but no, so uh, <laughs> where were we? Capital, right. Um, no, how we identify ownership is, I think, in coming in, becoming increasingly important. But uh, so on my end, I think sort of the work that I've settled on, that I'm trying to tell myself that I'm satisfied with, is convincing, again, myself that I need to educate people around what they're worth. Yeah. And 
sometimes we break that down to the data point. Sometimes we don't. Uh, actually, when I met uh, one of my colleagues with the, the book series that we publish on Anthem Press called The Ethics of Personal Data Collection, I was with Colette Mazzuccelli, who's at NYU, and she introduced me to all these women who worked at uh, Ford Foundation. And I was talking about value, value, value. Mm -hmm. And they were like, you know, have you ever thought if you sit down with a room of women, brown women in particular, and tell them that they're valuable, that they're worth more in a tangible monetary way, that their response will be no. Mm -hmm. I was like, no, I haven't. I, I wake mm -hmm. up most days in a blue suit thinking the world owes me a billion dollars. <laughs> I think Jeff Bezos owes me money. Um, I haven't put my finger on what that is. But I think if I had to make a legal argument, you know, mm -hmm. I could do it. Um, so I hadn't considered that. And so I think the hurdle to get over is really... It feels more cultural mm -hmm. uh, and communicating to people that they're valuable. And so I hope that, you know, in circles, I would love to know, you know, what you're seeing or what you're hearing in circles around blockchain are, is it starting to dumb down a bit? Are people starting to talk about the fact that they can own stuff digitally or seeing their money digitally or, you know, I'm just hoping that in the next 10 years, folks start to understand the way the world works a bit better mm. so that they can advocate for what they're owed yeah. a bit more. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's my hope, but uh, I don't know how it's going on on your end. I think all of my blockchain friends from 10 years ago, I sort of pivoted and went, you know, guys, no one knows what we're talking about. Mm. You know, just we're just hanging out in Brooklyn, <laughs> patting each other on the back, like, we're brilliant. And we all were. It was fun. Mm -hmm. You know, we had beer. But I just thought, you know, no one else knows what we're talking about. And so even like this political campaign we're running up here, we started with this slogan, we owe us. And first folks would come to me like, you know, is it is it grammatically correct? Does this hmm. work, that work? Hmm. And I say, you know, I think it sounds like hip hop. And I think it's that's bigger than politics. And I think if we make what people are worth or what they're owed mm -hmm. sound like hip hop, mm -hmm. then maybe it's something that they'll march in the streets for. Yeah. Maybe it's something that they'll demand, or maybe it's something that they won't march for, but they'll just they'll go to school for and just know, sort of in the back of their head. I know I'm due a bit more mm -hmm. than whatever I'm getting from the wage factory mm -hmm. that I'm working for. And, I mean, that's been, been my work. Uh, but for, uh, and I guess it is sort of, you know, the, the work that you all are doing, I mean, you all are really, you know, painting the picture with... Uh, with the books you write and the, the histories that, that we can pull on, um, I don't think, even though people think about money constantly, mm -hmm. that they're sitting back thinking about what money is. Yeah. Um, are you doing any talks outside of, you know, the NYU ecosphere? Are you, how many people are you, you you're not on the internet, but you're on the internet. Like, it's surprising <laughs> to me that you met your cover artist on Instagram, but you're not really, like, on Instagram. Maybe maybe you have like a dead account on there. That you just look at stuff, but you don't pu publish stuff with. No, I'm I'm a, I'm a really weird, archaic dude. You know, it's I live up to my beard in terms of. <laughs> I live up to my beard. out of you know. I need a yeah, man. If I could just grow a mustache, it would yeah. be great. Uh, <laughs> I do, but it's weird. It comes in all red and blonde. Mm, it looks yeah, like I've yeah. just got stuff on my face. <laughs> but um, you, but so right. So you're not on the internet, but you're on the internet. Like you, yeah. you 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 give a lot of talks, etc. Yeah. Um, and what are you sort of, you, you have stuff coming up like outside of the, the NYU sphere or like, what are you, what else is going on? What else yeah. is good beyond, <laughs> beyond digital cash? I'm just, Oh, that's a really good question. How can we stalk you? On yeah. 
I'm pretty honestly. Yeah. I'm pretty unstockable. Honestly. Only like just because I'm. I'm like you know. I I actually am in the kind of weird position that I grew up with this. Like mm-hmm. like I, I grew up in the Bay Area. I grew up in like the middle of the kind of first you know the pre dot com boom yeah. and then the dot com boom and I, I kind of grew up in that exact space and. I realized I was like a bad fit for it, you yeah. know, like uh, it made you want to run away. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it That's made me amazing. really interested in uh, in trying to it made me really interested in what I saw as as more uh, concrete things, sure. you know. But part of that is also kind of getting back to your point. Um, understanding our data as a concrete thing, you know, yeah. like that's that's kind of how I got really interested in working on surveillance. Um, oh, really? Yeah, it was because understanding surveillance, not just in the general sense of like, you know, part of the digital cloud that we're all living in, sure. but instead as, as a specific way that power gets exerted over vulnerable people. Yeah. Um, and, and so trying to understand the concrete power relationships and how they played out simultaneously helped to drive the work that I do while also making me never want to have anything to do with being online, you know? That is really interesting. Yeah. I mean, I was just in Berkeley and talking to a bunch of people about this issue and I'm always shocked when people stay out there. I'm not a big fan of the area. I mean, maybe I'm like too New York to want to. I'm originally from Detroit, and I felt like I had to flee Detroit to be in hmm. New York. Hmm. And I'm like head over heels with this place. I don't think I can escape it. And so yeah. when I'm anywhere else, it feels like, uh, when am I getting back to the city? <laughs> but um, no, I was just talking with the former Michigan Governor Granholm and Jaron Lanier out hmm. in in Berkeley about these issues. They seem to love it out there, by the way. <laughs> so no <laughs> yeah. knock on anyone who likes being out there. But, um, yeah, I think everyone's thinking about the, the surveillance play, the privacy play, mm-hmm. and how we get a grasp on it. I know that sort of Jaren and I are al- aligned on the ownership piece that we have to be able to enforce yeah. our um, our will, yeah. whatever it may be, to be... You know, either indemnify, whether we're talking about financially, or to enforce our privacy when we when mm-hmm. we want it. And so that means data has to be a tangible thing. But that's another hurdle to get over to tell people yeah. that their that their data is this real that it's a physical thing. And yeah. I mean, it is. It's on some box somewhere. Yeah. The yeah. cloud is still a drive. It stripes on a hard drive. It you is, know, in Santa right? Clara. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah. People are like, yeah. where's the cloud? I'm like, the cloud is actually probably a, you know a, a well managed room with great HVAC. <laughs> You see it from the freeway, you know, exactly. it's just a huge square warehouse a with a lot of AC on the roof. Yes, the cloud is down low. But, um, I mean, how do, do are you are you familiar with anyone that you think is doing that well? Like, one thing we try to do is say our digital lives are not separate from our lives. Mm-hmm. I have, as of late, started to try and talk about digital things as abstract spiritual things, mm-hmm. even though I'm not... Uh, the spiritual religious Abrahamic guy by any Mm. means, I found a lot of the wisdom that comes from those places necessary Mm -hmm. in these spaces of digital conversations to make people try and relate to something that they can't touch. Yeah. But that, you know, that is tangible in those boxes off of the freeway. Yeah. So I don't know anything, anything on that, anything that, that you're seeing, anyone that you're hearing from, Yeah, I mean, I think in a way that really kind of connects, I think, to some of the things you've talked about, for me, uh, a a big shift that's happened in terms of what I look for now is that I think we're 
we're still dealing with a fundamental mistake that we made decades ago, mm. which was to assume that dealing with all this stuff was the responsibility of individuals. Mm. That, like, it was down to you to protect your privacy, and it was down to you to, like, manage your data and so on, when, in fact, we should be approaching these things the way we approached, uh, like, food safety, you know? Mm. The way we approach the idea that, like, you shouldn't have to... I used to be such a, an activist around cryptography and mm -hmm. around the use of, like, all... and But then, after years of trying to get people to adopt these programs and use them in these very specific ways, I started to realize, why is it their responsibility? You know, it shouldn't be their responsibility any more than it was their responsibility to not breathe in the leaded gasoline.